podcast. It's informative, it's entertaining, it's exciting, and it's my source for all things Polish. When I listen to podcast, I can be sure that I'm going to discover some kind of buried treasure, something that I didn't know about Poland or Polish people, or Polish culture, or Polish traditions. And not just in Poland, but in countries all over the world. In Canada, in India. I mean, who knew? Thank you, Polkast. I just can't wait for the next episode. My name is Ted Dawson, and although I'm not Polish, I love the stories and the issues that Polkast covers. My partner, Eva Henry, and I are also very, very grateful for the support Polcast has given us in many respects, but particularly for our volunteer project working with youth in Tanzania. Polcast to me is not simply a podcast, but it is a strong supporter of the work, the interests, and the lives of Poles everywhere. Thank you, Polcast. When I feel like, uh, you know, relaxing, I tune into Polcast. <laughs> Poland, uh, things that come to mind. Not a whole lot, no. <laughs> Poland, probably not a whole lot. Uh, Polish sausages. No, I don't know anything about that country. Poland, sausages, <laughs> pierogies. Is that it? We hope it's not. That's what we're going to try to show you. Małgorzata Bonikowska, and you're listening to episode 64 of Polcast, recorded and produced in Toronto. Well, this is my first solo episode of Polcast. Up till the last episode 63, we worked on it together with Tomek Kniat, who had to leave due to what we all suffer from, lack of time. So now you will hear only me. I hope you keep enjoying Polcast. Thank you for these wonderful comments about podcasts that you'll hear at the beginning of this episode. This is a new moment in the history of podcast, which almost forces me to give you some kind of a summary. Podcast, the first ever English language podcast about Poland and Poles around the world, started in April 2016, first as a bi-weekly podcast, and then, to act on the request of our listeners, we made it bigger and longer and it became monthly. 137 stories, which means that I conducted over 120 interviews, because not all the stories were interviews, but most of them were. Interviews with amazing people of many nationalities connected with Poland in one way or another, and no politics. Well, what's the summary? 437,700 downloads by people in well over 100 countries, including such places as Nepal, Cambodia, Kenya, Sri Lanka, and the Holy See, Vatican. We also have our website, mypolcast.com, which presents you all the episodes what's in each episode, but also stories. Stories are based on the interviews. And with great pleasure, I have to tell you that we got four awards for our podcast, two in Canada, one in Poland, and one in Austria. 
So now, Polcast is created and produced by me, Małgorzata Bonikowska, also known as Margaret Bonikowska. All the beautiful jingles and music are created by Ola Turkiewicz, who has been with Polcast since its very beginning. And if you're hearing this episode and it sounds good, this is all thanks to Michael Pugacevic, who took care of the sound. Why is it that not only Polish people or people with Polish roots, but also people who have no Polish blood in them, study Polish literature, culture, and language in countries outside Poland. Polish studies exist and flourish at universities all over the world. They definitely do so in Toronto, at Canada's most prestigious university, the University of Toronto, known as the U of T. Łukasz Wodzyński is an assistant professor at the Department of Slavic Languages and Literatures at the U of T, His research interests are the 19th and 20th century Polish and Russian literature and culture, modernism, adventure narratives, among others. Łukasz is head of Polish studies at the University of Toronto. Polish studies, you are in charge of Polish studies at the University of Toronto. How popular are Polish studies in North America? It's really hard to generalize because every single department is slightly different in that respect. It's a very different situation, for example, in Chicago, where there is a large Polish community. It's different in Toronto and Mississauga and GTA in general, where there is um, there is also a sizable Polish community. Polish studies are the second most popular Slavic culture that students choose after Russian cultural field if they venture into that part of Europe in their studies. So is it is it graduate studies or do you also have undergraduate courses? No, predominantly, predominantly undergraduate studies. People who choose Polish studies can be very different. Some of them uh, come from the Polish community. Uh, they can be first, second generation um, Poles. Uh, people who maybe grew up in Polish families, they went through the Polish uh, weekend schools, and they want to continue their Polish education at the university. Uh, there are people who have Polish roots, but at some point there was the, the link was broken. Uh, but now they kind of go on this path of self-discovery and they want to reconnect with their roots. The Polish studies is a way for them to rediscover those those roots, that, those roots, that, that heritage. Uh, we also have, of course, um, a lot of romantic stories. That is, students whose girlfriends, boyfriends, spouses are Polish and they want to get along with their parents-in-law. Sometimes there are uh, linguists, historians, uh, political scientists who are simply interested in the region and they want to, and language and uh, culture, and they're curious and they want to learn more about it. And sometimes there are students who are simply curious. They had some contact with Polish culture, a text, a novel, a poem, and it really drew them in. And they um, that became the beginning of their path to learning more about Polish culture. How many do you have? Uh, so uh, language classes uh, typically oscillate between 10 and 20 students, um, which, is, which is great. This is what, um, what we want for language class. Uh, cultural classes uh, tend to be more, uh, more popular. A lot of them are taught in English. 
so they're more accessible to a broader body of students. Uh, and that also depends on the topic. We teach courses on war and culture, which look at Poland between and during both world wars, that not only looks at Polish history, but also the mechanisms, the ways in which culture resists the destruction that war brings with it, uh, the way war experiences are uh, reflected uh, on in culture, but also ways in which, again, culture defends itself uh, against the effects of war, which is a popular uh, course with the students. Uh, we have a course on Polish cinema, for example, which brings in very different people, cinema studies students, Polish students, communism and culture, introduction to Polish culture. So each of those courses has a slightly different composition of students. These can have between 15 and 30 students. This has been a great adventure for me because I first came to the Polish program in 2005. So I was an undergraduate student taking courses here. I was, when I later on did my master's degree, I did also at the Department of Slavic Languages and Literatures, working on Polish and Russian literature. And even as a student of comparative literature, I still had very strong ties with the Polish program and the knowledge, the skills, the experience uh, and the support I found here has been immensely important in my academic career. Okay, but you're not staying, <laughs> unfortunately, right? You're, you're just moving to the States in the fall. Yes. Having the um, opportunity to actually work in this program and to develop this program uh, and to continue um, helping the program um, become even more robust and, uh, and dynamic, this was uh, an immense pleasure and, once again, a fantastic experience. Uh, and I think... I will look forward to bringing a lot of that into my new position at University of Wisconsin-Madison. The U of T Polish studies, is it safe in the sense of enough people interested in it, enough funding? Of course. The, the, the thing about the Polish studies uh, at the Department of Slavic Languages and Literatures at the University of Toronto is that it's the second largest unit within the Slavic department. And we're also an extremely dynamic program. That is, um, apart from our language and cultural classes, which continue to draw students, uh, we also have a study abroad exchange program with the Polonicum Center, which is um, a center that specializes in teaching Polish as a foreign language. Uh, so we have their instructors coming to our program um, with the latest methodologies of teaching Polish, and they work with our students. We can also send our students uh, in the summer um, to study there to further improve their um, their Polish language skills. Uh, we also, uh, thanks to the sponsorship of Joanna Demone, we can invite uh, doctoral students who study in Poland to complete their research projects here. And on top of that, we have a very dynamic and robust uh, program of extracurricular programming. So field trips, uh, cultural and language workshops, uh, special occasion events, guest lectures. So there is quite a lot of things happening. And um, just the past year, uh, the Polish program also celebrated the publication of Being Poland, one of the largest uh, research projects on pedagogical and research projects on Polish literature to appear in the past few decades. That is, it's a collaborative project, uh, a new history of Polish literature, in the 20th century, 
that involved over 60 contributors from all over the world. Uh, Professor Tamara Trenovska is uh, one of the three editors of this volume. Uh, the book was published by the University of Toronto Press. It was partly sponsored by uh, Polonia organizations in Toronto. So it's very much the, the child of, um, of our program. And so with all of those things, I mean, even though uh, Polish studies, you know, compared to some of the larger departments like physics or biology um, is very small, but we are extremely dynamic and uh, we're very proud of that. Wow, congratulations. So your your take on the general uh, situation of Polish studies and prestigious, good universities, what do you think? I mean, is it gaining popularity? Do you find that people are more and more interested? Well, in order to answer this question, we have to remember that um, of the general context, which is that humanities everywhere are in crisis. Uh, that is, uh, the number of students globally across the humanities departments is dropping. Um, and in that context, um, I'm happy to say that we have not experienced any of that. That is, each new academic year, we have new people coming to the program, uh, new students who often stay for uh, several years. They really find the Polish program to be their home. They spread their enthusiasm, their enjoyment of their studies here uh, further, and so we can we can always uh, count on um, new people. With all the demographic and cultural changes, and the, the the academia itself undergoing a series of changes, I think I think we are at a very good place right now. What do they do when they graduate? Are many of them in the future careers? Are they connected to Poland, Polish studies, Polish culture? Do you know? Yeah, so we, we are in touch with some of our alumni. Some of them find jobs in completely unrelated disciplines. Uh, but the Polish studies and the experience that they got here uh, is part of who, of who they are. I mean, they sometimes playing out in, in very unexpected ways. Um, in their life. Some of them actually go to Poland. They've become so fascinated that they move to Poland and some of them uh, find uh, employment as editors, as librarians, um, all kinds of, all kinds of um, humanities-related disciplines. Um, but I think what, it, what matters in terms of Polish studies is that we provide the students with knowledge and skills that are very versatile. It's a very portable toolbox. The, the critical skills, the analytical um, approach to culture, language, and so, and oftentimes the, um, the content itself that is Polish culture um, enriches them and helps them in ways that are often very difficult to predict, but then after years they, they come back to us, they share their stories, and at very unexpected moments, that that knowledge and the experience became extremely useful for them, mm -hmm. which makes us very happy. You know that my second interviewee on this episode of Polcast is a special person whom you know personally. You met in the Poland and the Rockies, and that's this amazing, incredible translator, Bill Johnston. So yeah. you mentioned to me in our private conversation that you think he is a crucial person, a key figure in the Polish studies. In what way, Wukasz? Simply put, without translators, Polish studies in the current shape and form would not be possible. Uh, it is thanks to them, thanks to the availability of those translations, good translations, 
that we can share these texts with students. We can work with them on levels that um, would not be possible without them. Bill Johnston is one of the best out there. I mean, the, the, it's the not only the, the quality of the translations themselves, which are um, fantastic. I mean, just recently I've been working on um, Tomasz Różycki, a contemporary poet's uh, work, 12 Stations, uh, which has been beautifully translated by Bill Johnston. And looking at those two texts side by side, it is absolutely incredible how well he conveys the, the the original the original Polish. But it's not just the quality of the translation itself in in this case, but also the range and the uh, how prolific he is as a translator. That is, he translates things like Pantadeusz, the, the, the extremely important book for Polish culture. But at the same time, he translated numerous novels, contemporary novels, poems. Uh, it goes beyond uh, Polish studies. The service that translators like Bill Johnston, um, Ursula Phillips, Antonia Lloyd-Johnson, I mean, there are, uh, we are really blessed with having a number of great translators of, of Polish literature. Without translations, um, we would not be able to, uh, not only well, in the Polish studies, not only be able to work with these texts, uh, but also more generally on the cultural level. I mean, this is really how Polish culture is able to participate in that global exchange of ideas uh, and culture. They provide us with uh, with the medium, with a way to reach other audiences and to keep Polish culture alive, really, as, as a kind of a global presence. So I, I think it's one of those aspects of cultural exchange that uh, oftentimes gets overlooked. Everyone always uh, obsesses about reading the works in the original and the importance of how certain things cannot be translated. But it's really uh, the talent and the skill of the people who make it possible that that maintains uh, our presence uh, abroad. And for that, we are always eternally grateful to, uh, to people like Bill Johnston. To learn more about the Polish studies programs at the University of Toronto, please visit our website, mypolcast.com. Oh. A co to z Neum obecnie? No jak to? Łegrowy pesk! Słodzechny, rychtych jak twoja. Ale weselsiu! To jej impreza szereg! Odprężni są! Jojem odpocięty. O, muszę sobie mlasną grezną! Wesle! Czyli teraz nic pan nie robi, to może mógłby pan peżno ryknąć. Zaraz, ne? Coś chcę wyjaśnia, purzerku. Łegra, ale są bluzcie, ale są bardzo zły. A ty dechty chcesz, żeby ją so rozgrzył, co? Nie nerwuj sa, bluzsa, nie nerwuj. Tatku, łęso wybiskły. Zrób coś. Apartno, a, ale... Co to je? Uwierzce, to jest zmiana no lepsza. What was that? That was Shrek in the Kashubian language. Why? Well, you have already met Krystyna Lagowski on podcast. She's a Toronto-based freelance writer specializing in automotive and the author of drivelikeagirl.ca. She's of Polish-Jewish ancestry, and her, as she calls them, obsessions include the great Canadian outdoors, Barbara Streisand, old Eastern European cars, Judaism, and Burmese cats. And Kashubi, the first Polish settlement in Canada, her beloved region of Ontario, which she visited for the first time while still in her mom's womb. 
This is part two of her beautiful story about Kashube. After the Second World War, when Polish immigrants came to Canada, they were thrilled to find this piece of Poland, this Kashube in the middle of Ontario. If you're walking down the street, you would say Dzień Dobry instead of Hello. The streets had names like Peplinski, Czapeski, Lorbetski, and there was a hardware store in Barry's Bay called Jakubowski's. How could you not feel right at home? The locals spoke Kashube. Now, here's where some of the Polish emigres were confused. They weren't sure what to make of the Kashube language. Some considered it to be a dialect. Well, when I was very young, I couldn't understand it. I thought it sounded like someone speaking Polish with a mouthful of marbles. But now that I'm older, I realize that Kashub is its own language. It has this melodic, lilting pattern that falls into its own rhythm. I've tried researching it on the internet, and I just fell down a rabbit hole. There's scholars and linguists that couldn't agree on what it is, where it came from, how to classify it. In Kashube, you don't say biedne, you say biedne, and you say niwem instead of niewiem. So I've come to the conclusion that Kashub has the same Slavic roots that Polish does. After all, doesn't Polish kind of sound like Ukrainian or Russian or Czech? And you certainly wouldn't call those a dialect. My parents were among those Polish immigrants who fell in love with Kashube in Canada. There's that first photo of my mother that was taken when they were renting a guest cottage from the Pilachinskis, who had the prettiest lot on the prettiest lake, Wadsworth. Mr. Pilachinski had bought the land from local farmer John Dombrowski for $50 and a ringer-style washing machine. Pilachinski built two cottages on a grassy slope that glided down onto a sandy beach into the lake. You could walk out 20 feet in the lake and the water would be barely past your knees and the sun shone all day. It was just glorious. So my father bought a piece of land from John Dombrowski a little further west on Wadsworth Lake for a few hundred dollars and a handshake. It was in a small bay among huge towering pines. My father built a cottage in the backyard of our home in Etobicoke. That's right. From plants, he drew up himself and he spent days hammering and sawing away without the help of any power tools. There were two rooms, a kitchen and a bedroom, and a tiny extra room we called the komurka. Hopefully one day it would be a bathroom. My father marked each piece of wood, knocked it down, and put it in a trailer. Over a long weekend, he drove up to Barry's Bay with his friend Mr. Nishabinsky, and the two of them built a cottage under the tall pines on our tiny piece of pie-shaped land. There was no hydro, no running water, no telephone, but it was heaven. On the last day of June, my father would deposit my mother and myself at the cottage and leave us there for two months. There were just two rooms, a wood stove, a pump, and an outhouse. My mother, a Holocaust survivor, worried a little about the pines crashing down on us during the thunders during a thunderstorm. But she loved the sound of the wind murmuring through the pines, the way the leaves and the pine needles would, would sort of hum and rustle. 
We spent countless hours on the, on the sliver of beach, and we splashed about in the pristine lake. I would capture frogs and toads. I would build sand castles and decorate them with bits of pine branches and grassy reeds. My mother and I would go for long walks, and she showed me how to weave daisies into a wreath, which I wore like a crown. Bullfrogs and whippoorwills lulled us to sleep at night. We feasted like royalty on raspberries, blueberries, and tiny wild strawberries that grew along the road. Whenever the mosquitoes would descend, my mother would wave them away, saying, Bridges, go away! and laugh, even the mosquitoes here speak Polish. And when the rains came pattering on the roof, my mother and I would stay inside. We would read comic books, we'd play cards. Sometimes she'd even let me win. <laughs> then we would sing songs from Mazovsha. She cooked on a Coleman gas stove, making everything from beef stew to cutlets and potatoes. After the wane, we would put on galoshes and a kerchief. Breathe deep, she would say, throwing her, out, her arms out and drinking in the pine-drenched air. We would scurry around the fragrant woods looking for mushrooms. My mother knew which ones were good and which ones were poisonous. But even the good ones, she picked up and broke open the cap to check for grubs. And when we got back to the cottage, she would thread them up and drag and hang them in the window to dry. We didn't want for anything. My mother and I would walk up to the Dombrowski's, which wasn't far, and buy milk fresh from the cows, eggs fresh, fresh from the chickens, homemade bread, butter, and even cakes. And when my father came up on the weekends, it was more fun. We could hear the echo of the car all the way over from when he was on the other side of the lake. One summer, he built me a sturdy little rowboat dubbed Kachushka. At dusk, we would paddle out on the lake to the creek, leaving placid water striders in our, in our wake and cast our rods into the reeds. Sometimes we'd even catch a rock bass. My father taught me how to tell the time by looking at the sun. As it crept along the sky, I watched my shadow follow across the ground. John Dombrowski would come by with his horse and his cart every Saturday, carrying a huge block of ice for our icebox. My father would invite him in for a glass of Krupnik or Schlivovitz and inquire, was the winter bad? Was the snow high? Had the lake frozen completely? Did he think the bugs were going to be bad? Well, the cottage was eventually expanded with an extension. Electricity came, but we never had running water or a telephone. These were the happiest hours of my life. It's hard to capture Kashuba in words. There's the intoxicating smell of sun-drenched pine, the crisp fragrance of the cool inky blue lake, the cry of the loon, the way the layer of pine dust seemed to muffle the sound, the sweetness of the spring water from the pump and the gentle slap of the waves against the beach. One of the groups that also discovered the, the beauty of Kashubit were the Polish scouts, the Hartzerstvo. There are scout camps throughout the area where Boy Scouts and Girl Guides of Polish descent spend their days in camping cabins. They have an active schedule of hiking, swimming, sailing, doing crafts, and learning about nature. In the evening, there are campfires, ogniska. 
The descendants of the original Kashuba settlers have built numerous monuments to their proud history. In Vilno, there is a Polish Kashub Heritage Museum. It has everything from furniture, dishes, clothing, and books in Polish, Kashub, and English. You can sample traditional foods at the Vilno Tavern, like pickled herring, schlecz, potato pancakes, pierogi, cabbage rolls, under walls adorned with vintage farming implements, signs, and vivid floral trim in Kashuba folk motif. Yes, the mosquitoes and the black flies are still there, but so are the towering, are the soaring pines, the intoxicating air, the crystal clear lakes, and the Kashubs, and they always will be. To learn more about Kashube, please visit our website, mypolcast.com. In his review published in The Spectator, Boyd Tonkin writes, It's hard in Britain to imagine a popular museum devoted to a single poem the Polish city of Wrocław hosts just such a shrine. It celebrates Pan Tadeusz, the verse novel written in his Parisian exile by the poet, dramatist, and freedom fighter Adam Mickiewicz in the early 1830s, and now taught as a keystone of collective identity to every Polish schoolchild. Boyd Tonkin calls it a Lithuanian Romeo and Juliet. Adam Mickiewicz is to Poland what Robbie Burns is to Scotland. He is regarded as a national poet, not only in Poland, by the way, but also in Lithuania and Belarus, where his statues have been erected. A giant of Polish romanticism, one of Poland's iconic three bards, he is widely regarded as Poland's greatest poet. Well, you cannot be considered Polish unless you have read Pantadeusz, written a number of essays at school about this Polish national epic, unless you know the story, famous scenes, and all the characters, and can recite at least a few of its exquisite 13-syllable rhyming lines. Well, imagine trying to express all that in another language. This is exactly what Bill Johnston has achieved to great critical acclaim. His Pantadeusz, the last foray in Lithuania, was published by Archipelago Books last year. These are just a few expressions used to describe this achievement. Delightful tale, deliciously told, hilarious, poignant and poetic, uncluttered by archaisms, quick and energetic, full of humor and warmth, unobtrusively rhymed. It is a gift to English language readers. Bill Johnston is a professor of comparative literature at Indiana University and a prolific translator of Polish literature. He has translated Polish literature of all genres and epochs. He has received dozens of awards for his outstanding work. I reach Bill Johnston in Bloomington, Indiana. How is it possible that anybody would even think 
of translating something that is called a national epic and then right. talking about, you know, Lithuanian backwards uh, so many years ago. Why would you do that over 400 pages? It's special to our culture, special to Poles. What is in it that the world would gain? That's a that's a good question. And it, it really sort of cuts to the heart of what it means to translate literature generally. I think there's a, a misconception in, that many Poles share that their literature is hermetic, that it's uh, you, you have to be Polish to understand it, and um, that if you're not, then it's meaningless. And that's definitely true of some works. I mean, I, I would think of, for example, um, Stanisław Wyspiański's Wesele, which is a – you really do have to know a lot about Polish culture too. Um, to understand what he's doing there. But it really does a disservice to a lot of other writing. And I think that they, um, this, this misconception, which, you know, maybe, maybe it's a way that Poles have of sort of protecting themselves or kind of explaining why people, uh, why non-Poles don't read Polish books so much. But the fact is that a lot of Polish literature really is very accessible. And what happens is that readers who are not Polish get different things out of those books than, than Poles do. Um, and I think Pantadeusz is a very good example that at one level, it's an extremely Polish book in terms of its cultural dimension, the, the history and so on. But at another level, it's a book which is actually very accessible to um, non-Poles. Pantadeusz, yeah, National Epic really does make it sound terribly boring. But um, And I think a lot of like reviewers and readers have been quite surprised at how unboring it is. But the truth of it is it's really kind of a novel in verse. Uh, it's a good novel. It's a novel that has wonderful characters who are very funny and very engaging and um, you know, a very significant part of the text is is um, dialogue. There's there's a love story which is quite complicated and and uh, sort of ironic. And there's a whole um, political subplot and there's a, a, f a feud between neighbors. All of those things are really quite comprehensible to somebody who doesn't know um, Poland mm -hmm. or Polish culture. And uh, you know, as as to why to translate it. Um, I, I will say I'm not the first person to have produced a, a translation of Pantadeusz. I mean, I know of at least eight or ten other renderings, um, mostly into verse, some in, into prose. Um, so if it's a foolish thing to do, I'm not the first fool to undertake it. <laughs> I don't think it's foolish. Actually, I, re I read about your translation that it was the first one to bring it into modern English. But still, mm -hmm. you managed to to do it in verse, right? You, you managed to right. turn this uh, this proverbial uh, Mitzkevich's iambic pentameter into into your own fantastic verse. How long did it take you? It took me almost four years. I went very slowly. I translated 10 lines a day. And normally when I work, um, I do a very, very rough draft. Um, and I go through the whole book like that. And then I go back and I do um, a slightly less rough draft and then polish it up with a third draft. But with this, with this book, it was a different working process because I, wanted, I needed the rhyme and rhythm to be in place. Oh. 
Um, and so the first draft was much more intense, much um, slower and more um, kind of detailed job. Um, and so each day I had to leave the day with 10 lines like in place that had rhyme and had rhythm. You know, I often thought that if at the time I was working on it, if somebody had made a documentary about my working day, it would have been the most boring documentary you could imagine because it would mostly be me just staring at a blank page. Often I would stare for minutes on end with just a single couplet. And what I was doing in my head was, was um, it, it's kind of like one of those puzzles that you have to fit you know, wooden pieces together so that they mm -hmm. form a square, it, except you know, the pieces weren't ready-made. I had to kind of come up with them. Was there a lot of compromise? I'm saying, you know, situations when you said, oh, okay, well, let's just leave it. No, <laughs> no, I, I don't like doing that. There, I mean, there are many moments where there was details, uh, small details in the Polish that I just couldn't include. But I worked very, very hard to, to make sure that um, the, what you would call the semantic content was, was present. So all of the, you know, the, the facts that are mentioned, but above all that the, um, the tone Uh, matched and that it was as close to the original inelegance that I was that I was capable of because the elegance was a very important thing to me and um, you know you, you mentioned before that the idea of the first version in modern English and the the fact is that the the two best known translations of the poem both from the 60s um, both of those translators so Watson Kirkconnell was the first one uh, Kenneth McKenzie was the other translator and both of them kind of tried to write the poem as if it had been written in English in the early 19th century I made a list actually of, of words that I did not include that were like that um, and I really wanted to exclude any language that um, that made it feel as if I was trying to write in the language of one of Miskiewicz's contemporaries. And I think that's a it's kind of a misconception that's quite common um, among non-translators. And actually, some translators think it as well that um, if you're translating a work from, let's say, the early 19th century, that your English needs to be early 19th century English. It's a piece of false logic because if you take it to its logical conclusion, then if you're translating, let's say, um, Homer, then we didn't have English in 800 BC. You, you know, there's no English that we could translate into. And so you have to translate it into some, some other kind of English. And so the, really the only other way of thinking about it that makes any sense is to say that is to ask what, what did Miskiewicz's language sound like to Polish readers at the time? Many Polish readers were quite shocked at how plain his language was. And he himself said it at some point, I think in one of his letters, he said, uh, in retrospect, I wish I'd, I'd raised it like half a tone higher. And, but he didn't. Um, he wrote this thing in, in very you know, easily readable um, conversational language. And so it's very important to me to write an English that was equally accessible. What is the reception? And I don't mean reviewers. I don't mean literary critics. I mean people, regular readers. I'm sure you've had a lot of meetings with regular, normal people who would just read it, who don't know maybe the Polish uh, original. People, uh, people seem to... Um, To enjoy it, I think one thing that's come out, you know, I've given a lot of readings where I, I read aloud from the text, and um, it reads very well, actually, in the sense that it's it's the kind of text that um, that it seems well adapted to performance. 
precisely because a lot of it is spoken because it's also capable of being very mm-hmm. lyrical very beautiful beautiful um his descriptions of nature are extraordinary and i think um all of the english speakers who've um, heard me read it or who have read it for themselves have commented on that that they they find it very beautiful in places very dramatic and and yeah and because of that very varied actually have you seen the the movie the film that was made by andre vaida based on it Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you think? Mm-hmm. I don't like films based on good works of literature generally. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're indulgent. And I think for me, the whole point of, of reading a, a work like Pantadeus is to imagine the characters. Um, I would rather someone else did not imagine them for me. But mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I do know that that film was very important and that it, it reconciled a whole generation of uh, Polish readers to the poem. You know, I think it's kind of funny that Pantadeus, the book arose out of a national trauma um, of the, the partitions and so on. And um, uh, and yet in the, the late 20th century, so many Poles were like doubly traumatized by it being forced to read this book in schools. You know, the, the, the older generation, I think, were not, were not so marked and they were very fond of the book. But um, a, a lot of people who, you know, were at school, maybe in the 60s, 70s, 80s, were um, forced to read this thing. It wasn't properly explained to them or whatever. And they were forced to kind of worship it without really knowing why. Mm-hmm. And Vida's film, in a sense, um, revealed the, the, the poem to them. Yeah. And I've, I've had a lot of people say that to me. When you take upon such a task, do you <clears throat> read almost everything or some of the literature that uh, that person had produced before, the author? You know, I had read the major works before, and I went back to, to some of them. I was much more concerned with this particular work, and so a large part of my time was spent reading. It was a very, very beautiful, wonderful edition um, in the Biblioteca Narodowa series, edited by Stanisław Pigoń. And so I spent a lot of time poring over his footnotes and doing a lot of research in that direction. And I also I read, you know, other literature about Mickiewicz. There's a series of books by um, Jarosław Marek Remkiewicz um, that are sort of biographical explorations of Mickiewicz's life. Um, but I find them just absolutely marvelous. Well, let me ask you, I mean, 31 major works, that's what you've done, I counted. It's about dozens of other short pieces, dozens of awards. Why Polish literature? Are you, do you have any Polish roots? <laughs> no, no, not at all, no. I fell in love with the Polish language when I visited the country for the first time when I was 16. Um, it, it just, it seemed to me like exquisitely beautiful. And um, I knew Russian at the time. And so Polish wasn't quite such a mystery. But I instantly realized that I, I totally preferred Polish to Russian. And, um, and at that point, I decided I wanted to learn the language and um, went back in 81. I went to live there in 83, stayed for eight years. Um, and to this day, when I speak Polish, um, it, it feels like playing a musical instrument. Um, I love speaking Polish. I love hearing Polish. Um, I love the sound of the language. And it so happens that that you know, through whatever, for whatever reasons, reasons of, of language, of culture, of history, um, Poland has produced this really extraordinary literary heritage uh, and continues to, to this day. I, I've done something in my career which um, is somewhat unusual um, in that usually translators specialize in a particular genre. They translate novels or they translate poetry or they they focus on a particular historical period. And I, I've been very much um, 
kind of a butterfly. I've chosen texts from different periods. I've done a lot of the classics, you know, all the way back to Kochanowski, but also like Jaromsky and Gombrowicz and so on, and a lot of contemporary works as well. I feel very fortunate that there aren't actually that many Polish translators um, around, and I would say most of them have been focusing on um, contemporary um, fiction and poetry, which is, you know, which is good. But there are all these classics, which have usually, if they have been translated at all, it hasn't been very well done, frankly. And so I sort of feel, you know, that I'm, I'm in the bookstore and I've just, I've discovered this back room in the bookstore that's filled with like absolutely marvelous things that I can work on. But I'd like to know what it is. What is it in Poland that fascinated you? And what is it in the language that fascinates you still? <laughs> Maybe it's the encounter between Slavic culture, Slavic roots, um, and Latin, Catholicism, uh, French. And you, you, so you, you create this, you know, marvelous sort of, in a sense, double vocabulary where you can have, you know, a word like universitet, but you can also have wszechnica. Um, and there are many, many parallels like that. Um, And and I think that lends the um, the language a, a particular richness. I think its its history of social class and social relations also leaves uh, a very significant uh, trace in the way of um, forms of terms of address, for example. But there was there was an interview in um, one of the literary journals with um, Wiesław Myśliwski, who's a, a writer I've translated, a writer that I admire very much. And he, he was asked some kind of question like that, like, you know, what is it about Polish literature? And, and what he said was something like, um, and I'm paraphrasing here, he said there is language and there are human fates, like human stories, ludzkie losy. And I think that, That, in many ways, is a is as good an answer as any as to what is special about um, Polish writing. That it, it does have this really um, beautiful linguistic resource that is, in, you know, in a sense, in the, is right in the middle of Europe. So it's got these sort of Slavic, this, this deep Slavic well that it can draw from. But it's also connected with with Latin through the church and also, you know, with English now today and so on. And at the same time, it's got this extraordinary richness of things that happen to people um, through its history, through its, you know, it's, it's, it's through geography, through its, through where it is. Um, you know, Norman Davis entitled his book, God's Playground. And, and there is something there of, of this country that people keep invading and keep passing through and keep fighting with. Um, and you, again, you think of the story in Pantadeus. I mean, those those things didn't yeah. happen. There was, you know, Napoleon didn't march through England or the United States, um, and the Russians didn't occupy. And and so the, the pure facts of, of geography and history have have um, provided the country with an with an astonishing richness of of human experience, you know, much of which is sad and yeah. uh, indeed tragic, but. Um, It has led to the production of the most extraordinary literature. And so, so, so you would say that Polish literature, or that Poland has produced or has been producing, I should say, literature mm. that's special. That's, um, I mean, everyone, every literature is unique and special, but it's mm -hmm. of particularly high quality. You know, I, I, I'm biased, so I'm not the best person to ask about this, but um, I think there. Um, and I also believe that, yeah, that, that you know, I, I think of a writer like Gombrowicz, who on the one hand 
completely embraced his Polishness uh, and on the other hand was driven completely mad by it, in in some sense loathed some aspects of of Polish culture and Polish history and resented the fact that that it weighed upon him or or people thought that it should. You know, he has those stories of going to... um, uh, some kind of embassy gathering in in Paris, and all he all he hears about is you know Chopin, oh. and uh, and you know and, and yeah uprisings and what have you. Um, there's a there's a, a beautiful line from um, a song by Przemysław Kintrowski where he says something like "Lanas Chopin grochi kapusta your czasu do czasu powstanie." Um, and I think you would, writers, you would probably need to translate this because a lot of people that <laughs> listen to us don't speak Polish. Yeah, so he's well. He, he says what um, he's saying that for Pauls, all we need is is um, Chopin, um, peas and cabbage, and <laughs> once in a while an uprising. I, I think every writer should be allowed to transcend their um, national and cultural background. But um, but it, I think it's still true that that um, the Polish experience has been particularly rich, and uh, and continues to be actually. Um, is it underrated? Is it misunderstood? Is it you know a lot of Poles would say we can't get our story out. In a sense, that I have less sympathy for because that's just the way of the world. Nobody can get their story out. You know, I mean, if if that were the case, then every literature except American, British, French, German, Russian. Every literature, you know, the, the the Norwegians and the Belgians and the the Slovenes and the, everybody would be sitting around saying we can't get our story out. And to, to a certain extent, that's true, but it's also inevitable. Yeah. Um, I, I think at the present moment, certainly in this country, in the United States, there is really healthy interest in international literature. You know, I, I think of like the, the big prizes, like the um, the Man Booker that. Um, uh, Jennifer Croft and Olga Tokarczuk won yes. um, the last time, which is which is a wonderful thing. And I think that that prize and those kinds of prizes are, are emblematic of um, a great interest in literature from all different countries. Any new ideas? What are you going to translate now? I, I, I must say that I miss working on Panta de, which I personally actually really enjoyed the the struggle that I had. Someone asked me in, in Poland when I was there, what was the hardest part of translating Pantadeusz? Mm-hmm. And I think they were expecting something like, you know, the names of the mushrooms or something. Mm-hmm. And um, what I said was the English. The English was the hardest part. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I like that struggle. I've been doing a couple of uh, shorter projects right now, but I'm looking for another big thing to take on. And what I'm hoping to do um, is Noce i Dnie, Nights and Days by Maria Dombrowska. Absolutely great idea. Yeah, you know, this it's um uh, either one long novel or or a novel cycle. It's somewhere around two thousand pages, um, and has never been translated into English. Actually, nothing by Dombrowski has been translated, and um, she's really this sort of missing figure in twentieth century writing. You know, now Koska is now being translated, and yes. obviously. Um, Schulz and Lubrovich and and um, Vitkatze and everybody, um, they've all received attention. And Dombrowska has really been left behind. And mm. she she wrote this absolutely gorgeous, um, sweeping, uh, wonderful, wonderful story 
that is, I mean, I, I don't want to sound sexist or anything, but it's, it's, a, it's a woman's story and, right. and woman, women's writing in the absolutely best possible sense that it's about um, the daily experience of motherhood and of um, being in a family and um, you know, worrying about money and worrying about the land and worrying yeah. about your kids. And it's brilliantly written. Her style is, is uh, absolutely exquisite, so crystal clear. You went in, you went to Poland in 81 did you say Yeah well I went so I went for the first time in, in um, 1976 Oh I see still under the, yeah yeah uh, under good old Gerek days <laughs> yeah. uh, um, then yeah so that was for two weeks I went back for a month in 81 and mm -hmm. then in um, September of 1983 so immediately after mm -hmm. the end of martial law I um, moved to Poland. Uh, I started teaching English there, and Where I did you stayed teach? there for eight years in all. Where did you teach? First of all, at the Jagiellonian University in Krakow, mm, yeah. um, and then um, at the um, the University in Wrocław. Do you go all the time to Poland, or it's more now of a of a long distance relationship? Yeah, I mean, I go. I end up going usually about once a year. Uh, the last time I was there was for some events connected with Pantadeusz back in um, October of last year. Right. Are you uh, worshipped in Poland? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure you you know whether you get a lot of attention and love from everybody because you're doing something very special for Poland. Yeah, I feel as if I'm um, appreciated, that I'm treated with respect. Um, so it's yes, I absolutely. Um, We would say that um, I'm very grateful for um, for the way people look after me when I'm there. On a personal note, when we at Gazeta and Phoenix Polish Film Promotion used to organize the annual Polish Film Festival in Toronto and Polish film premieres, one of the most memorable ones organized at an over 3,300-seat downtown Toronto theater, the Hummingbird Center for the Performing Arts, was precisely that of Andrzej Wajda's Pantadeusz. And then Phoenix Polish Film Promotion also distributed the film in Canada. So, as you can see, my life has very strong ties to Mickiewicz's masterpiece. To learn more about Bill Johnston, his incredible work, as well as Pantadeusz, and to hear Bill Johnston speak with me in Polish, incredible, I'm telling you, please visit our website, mypolcast.com. Smacznego. We're here talking about our love for eating Polish. My name is Peter. And my name is Laura. And we wrote two heritage Polish cookbooks called Polish Classic Recipes and Polish Classic Desserts, where all the recipes have been handed down from previous generations. But updated for modern kitchens, so no more pinch of this or glass of that. Today we're going to chat about beets, that amazing superfood that is such a huge mainstay of Polish cuisine. Beets contain plenty of minerals and nutrients to make us healthier and to help stave off all kinds of nasty diseases. And as a big bonus, they can be delicious. Well, sure, but with some doctoring. To help us dispel all the bad thoughts about beets, here is a fresh marinated salad that was featured a while back in Healthy Aging magazine in an article about the bounty of the garden. 
It's a heritage recipe from Warsaw that has remained very popular for generations, even among the doubters. Start with three cups of cooked beets, cut into quarter-inch strips, a cup of sliced green onion, two-thirds cup of dried currants, some olive oil, red wine vinegar, and as always, salt and pepper. Combine the beets, the onions, and the currants, whisk the oil and vinegar, and toss with the beet mixture. Add salt and pepper to taste, and that's it. For a pretty presentation, arrange each scoop of salad on a lettuce leaf. Garnish with more sliced green onion. How easy is that? And even if you're not yet a fan of beets, this dish will surprise you because the currants and the vinaigrette totally brighten up the earthy beets flavor. Peter's favorite garnish for Easter or any feast with kielbasa or ham is beets with horseradish. Chfikwa. We've shared this with you in other episodes, but it's so good that it deserves a quick review. It is very classic, truly unique Polish garnish that amazes everyone who tastes it. It takes just a minute to prepare and adds this gorgeous, rich, red splash of color on your plate. And if you make it a few days ahead of time, the flavors get better with time as the horseradish infuses more thoroughly with the beets. Essentially, it's five parts shredded beets mixed with one part horseradish and a pinch of sugar. Taste it to see if it's sharpness that you want for your palate, and that's it. I always add more horseradish when she's not looking, and we always have a jar in the refrigerator since it stores well for a long time. Do you like to experiment in the kitchen? Peter's always on me to kick up the natural flavor of vegetables. He's probably been watching too many cooking shows on TV. Lately, I've been experimenting with infused oils, olive oils, and balsamic vinegars. We're especially enjoying what sesame seed oil does to oven-roasted vegetables and the fresh kick that comes from drizzling some aged balsamic vinegar over roasted butternut squash. It really wakes them up. Tonight's dinner plan is an experiment. Broiled filet of rainbow trout with roasted orange beets. One of our favorite dressings for trout is made by mixing a few tablespoons of mayonnaise with a bit of Dijon mustard and some finely sliced green onion. We'll spread that mixture all over the top of the trout and then put it under the broiler about four inches from the burner for about seven or eight minutes. When the mayo mix starts to bubble and just char, the trout should be done. So the experimental part of tonight's dinner will be to roast some orange beets, which are a bit milder and sweeter than the traditional red varieties. Toss the beets with your favorite infused oil, such as roasted walnut oil and salt and pepper. Roast them in the oven, and then when they're done, drizzle the beets with a flavored balsamic vinegar. I'm going to use lemon tonight. When the fish and beets are on the plate, we'll sprinkle some more of the finely sliced green onion all over it as another garnish. We can't wait. The full recipe for these dishes and information about our heritage cookbooks are on our website, www.polishclassiccooking.com. Just scroll down to the article posted on January 31st, 2013. It's amazing. I mean, this sounds like, oh my God, so exciting. The completely different way of treating beets. Again, you know, this is it. You just guys have these new ideas. The, f- <laughs> the first one, the one with the vinaigrette, um, 
I'll tell you, all of our American friends love it, even the even those that don't like beets. And we actually use uh, take a lot of samples with us to some of our programs of that marinated beet salad, and people just they just love it. Yeah, no, because you know, and again, I think it's just so much depends on how you prepare it because you can kill the beets, right? I mean, you can just oh, make yeah. them in such a and again, it's like we talked about it um, before. It's with uh, sorrel that right. you know it all depends what you bring out of it, and because it's so healthy, it's great. Well, definitely, yeah. I am definitely making those things for sure. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck, and make sure you tell us how they come out. So definitely. And if they don't come out, I don't want to hear from you. Okay. <laughs> On Polcast, we have covered a large number of stories and presented to you many amazing people. I treat them all as our Polcast family. So, as in all families, we care about how family members do and what's up in their lives. So, as always, I'm happy to update you on Polcast's community members' new achievements. And I'm very happy to tell you that Eric Bednarski, an award-winning Canadian-Polish documentary film director who has been working in Poland for a number of years now and whom we featured in our episode 17 with the story of Canadian filmmaker's fascination with Warsaw and his then-new film about Warsaw Neons, has just had his new film premiered in Warsaw at the 16th Millennium Docs Against Gravity Film Festival. It was a sold-out world premiere screening of his powerful film Warszawa Miasto Podzielone, in English, Warsaw, a city divided, about the incredible destruction of Poland's capital during World War II and its Jewish ghetto. Pre-war Warsaw was inhabited by over a million people, including almost 400,000 Jews. I don't have to tell you what happened to most of the population of Warsaw. Eric's film features a true gem, an amateur film showing the brutal conditions of life in the Warsaw Ghetto from 1941. It is the first archival material to be discovered that was not filmed by the Germans for propaganda purposes. Well, I will definitely invite Eric to talk to me on podcast about his new film, but for now, congratulations, Eric. And at the end, a little bit about money. Well, our crowdfunding campaign completely crashed and it needed to be rebuilt from scratch. We do, or I should say, I do appeal to you to contribute to this campaign. Please visit the patrons page at mypodcast.com support. You can find all the information about the crowdfunding campaign, as we always said on podcast, what is free for you to listen to is not free for us to make. So I should say now, what is free for you to listen to is not free for me to make. So please support podcast. Go to mypodcast.com slash support and make a pledge. Also, when you visit our website, where you can find a lot of additional information, multimedia and links, please share your comments, your reactions and suggest ideas. If there's anything interesting that you know that I should cover on podcast, well, believe me, I have a long list of things to cover and stories to cover, but I'm always happy to listen to your suggestions. Please let me know. If you like what you heard, please share it with your friends and don't forget to rate this episode on your favorite podcast app. 
And this is it for now. Thank you to all the listeners. I'm really, really happy that you stayed with me until the very end. I hope you will all come back in June. Well, I want to leave you with something special. Actually, it is the anthem of Kashubia in the Kashubian language. Do-do-do